You know an underrated skill in life? Knowing exactly when to flip a pancake. I mean, seriously, right? I mean, you know, you have to be able to look at the batter and like see the bubbles at just the right time when the outside's getting a little crispy. Because if you go to flip that thing too soon, you know, you're flinging batter like everywhere. And, you know, you're burning one side, and then, you know, you, if you flip it too early, and then you go to eat it, the batter's, like, oozing out into your syrup, and that's no good. Um, or maybe it's like you're putting the burnt side down, just try to cover it up, and you're hoping, like, the people that you're serving it to aren't going to notice. Uh, you know, a half-baked pancake is just no good. And one of the things we'll see this morning is Jesus understands at the same time, a half-baked disciple is no good either. And so... He's going to kind of move from just like classroom theory into like real life practice. And so he's going to reach the point where he basically flips a switch and says, okay, everything that I'm teaching you here in a classroom, it's got to be able to apply to real life because he knows the challenges, the storms that are coming for them, that they're going to have to walk through, that empowered faith would have them walk through. But if they're not ready for it, well, they'll fail. And so that's where we're getting to here in Mark's gospel, chapter 4. Go ahead and turn with me. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 41. Mark 4, 26 through 41. It reads, And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises day and night, and the seeds sprout and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants who put out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat just as he was. And the other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was asleep in the stern on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? You know, as we read in our Bibles, our Bible is full, with, full of these paragraph headings, right? Your Bible had these paragraph headings. They're not inspired, but they're, they're helpful just to kind of see and track train of thought and this type of thing. But sometimes they kind of tell us that, well, you can read this section and then kind of stop, read this section and then kind of stop. And so sometimes we approach and we just study these in these type of sections and we fail to see the synthesis of it all, how it all fits together. One of my aims through this Gospel of Mark, our Empowered series, is to really understand how Mark is writing his gospel, how he's stringing it all together, how it's all coming together. So I hope you've seen that. I hope you see the fast-pacedness in which Mark is writing, and he's moving, and he's walking us through. 
We see how the masses of people at the beginning, they're, they're so attracted to Jesus. There's this winsomeness about Jesus where they can't get enough of Jesus. And at the same time, I think you're seeing just the animosity that the religious leaders have toward Jesus and how it's growing and developing. And now we've reached a point where it's developed to a place where Jesus says, hey, they can't handle any more truth about kingdom life because they're not kingdom citizens. And so he's speaking in parables to conceal truth about the kingdom from them so that they're not going to be accountable for it. It's uh, actually an act of grace on Jesus' part, not to give them more information that, that will involve more judgment. And so he conceals knowledge about the kingdom, but at the same time, he's revealing it to kingdom citizens. He wants the disciples to get it, so when they come in close, he's explaining it to them. And so last week, as we started with this parable section here in Mark chapter 4, he's explaining to the people, and through a parable, here's going to be the responses to the kingdom, and here's to the, to the offer of the kingdom. And, and he tells them this, and what's the response that he's looking for? Man, all in faith. And what does that produce? Results. Because it plays out in the real world. Real faith plays out in the real world, so it produces results. And so now, Jesus, he continues speaking, and he's talking about the kingdom still. Okay, what's the kingdom going to be like? And this is the question that he's working with as he speaks to them in parables. And he says, you know, the kingdom is like a man who goes out and he scatters seed. And you get the idea, this guy's pretty generous. He's just throwing his seed around, and then what does he do? He just kind of works during the day, sleeps at night, doesn't really know what's happening. He just kind of goes about his life. And the next thing you know, wow, okay, here's a harvest. And once he sees the harvest, he gets the sickle, he goes out, and he reaps the harvest. How does it happen? Well, I mean, we read it. The man, he doesn't seem like he has a clue of how it happens. He seems ignorant to the whole process, really. All he knows is, I scattered seed, I've gone about my business, and now there's a harvest, and I'm going to go, I'm going to take the sickle, and I'm going to reap the harvest. The power of the growth of the kingdom is in the seed. It, it's, it's in uh, the, what is being proclaimed, namely who is being proclaimed. That's where the power is. Now, there's an appointed order to all this. It's not just, well, you know, it all happened so haphazardly. No, it was sown. There's a growth process that takes place. There's a sprouting. There's a harvest. You can't hurry that process along. Nothing can be skipped over. Nothing can be delayed. What's working under the ground will eventually be brought to light. And so Jesus, he's explaining the kingdom to them. This is what the kingdom is like. And then he goes on. The kingdom of God, it's also like a mustard seed. Uh, the smallest of all seeds. And so as he's saying this, Jesus is speaking metaphorically, okay? Some have said, well, there's actually smaller seeds than mustard seeds. Yes, it's true. There are. And they knew about those seeds in Jesus' day. This, the, the phrase, as small as a mustard seed, it's, uh, it's an idiom that was used in the day. And so Jesus, he's just playing on cultural idioms. It's a very small seed. It's a very tiny seed. Is it the tiniest of all seeds? No, Jesus knows that it's not. But he's, he's speaking metaphorically to make this point that this very, very tiny seed will sprout into this very, very huge plant, this grand plant. And he's speaking here about the humbleness of the kingdom. In some respects, the hiddenness of the kingdom, right? It's so small, it's tiny, it's almost indiscernible. And yet my kingdom, it's going to sprout, it's going to grow, and it's going to be great. Now, there are two pitfalls 
that sometimes people kind of jump to when they're interpreting this parable specifically. And the first one is that like right now is this grand time of the king. Like this is what Jesus was envisioning as he's preaching to, to uh, the masses and explaining to the disciples like, oh, if the disciples could only be here right now and see what uh, the kingdom has sprouted to, man, they would be so excited. No, we're still like in the growth phase. We're not in the seed phase, but we're not like, this is not it, okay? And actually, the kingdom's better than this, all right? It's, as hard as that may be to believe, the kingdom is gonna be better than this. And so it's not like the disciples, they would arrive here today and they say, wow, look at this. I mean, the universal church is like multi-billion dollar budget and all these grand buildings and great programs and all these different denominations that send missionaries all over the earth. Like, man, this is great. I can't believe it. No, like there's more to the kingdom than this. Sometimes we, we want to reach with our own like human uh, ideas of what the kingdom should be. And when we see big buildings and big organizations and things like this, we think, oh man, is that grand? Is that awesome? This is what God must be doing. No, sometimes he uses the homely, the ordinary, the almost imperceptible, unnoticeable to make real, true, powerful impact. And sometimes, oftentimes, we miss it, right? And so we walk right by it because we're looking in all the wrong places thinking, well, hey, if, the ki- if this is kingdom stuff, it's got to be huge. It's got to be massive. But Jesus, he's not talking about cedars of Lebanon here. He's talking about a mustard plant, all right? The second pitfall that sometimes uh, people run into with this one is that phrase, uh, um, as small as a mustard seed, it is an idiom. And Jesus, he uses it another time, right? He says that when you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And so some people, they take that, well, Jesus said this about mustard seed. He's probably saying the same thing here. And so they apply it to individual faith. So it starts off as just a little bit of faith. I have just a little bit of faith, but then it grows and it expands and gets so much bigger. And this is what God's going to do in your life. You know, he's going to start with just a little speck of faith, but it's going to grow. It's going to be great. Jesus is speaking much more broadly than this. He's, he's not talking about individual faith. He's talking about the kingdom. This is the kingdom of God. Yes, it starts small, but the kingdom of God is going to have incredible growth. Not individual growth. He's talking about kingdom growth, all of kingdom citizens. So sometimes we want to reach into these parables and almost make them say something else, almost something more, because we feel like, well, this is kind of small. We're talking about seeds and sowing and tilling and harvesting and all that, like, Kingdom should be great. I mean, we should, have, we should be talking about armies and fortresses and palaces and shit much bigger than this. So, so we almost want to like make it bigger than it is. But sometimes the spectacular exercise of power is seen in just the smallest demonstrations of strength. The, the, the strength of a seed to push through the soil, to sprout and to grow. And so and that kind of power, it can be overlooked. We can walk right by it. We can miss it. And that's one of the things Jesus is pointing out here. I think two themes emerge from these parables. And one is the hiddenness of God's kingdom. Not the invisibility of God's kingdom. It's visible. It's just hidden to a lot. Because we want it to be so much more, so much bigger, so much greater in our minds. But 
No, there's, there's this phase to the kingdom where it seems small, almost imperceptible, easy to walk right by, and many people do. And the other thing is this confidence that what God says will happen, what he will do with his kingdom, he's going to do. Yeah, it might look small now, but when the harvest comes, when the kingdom is in full kingdom effect, it's going to be huge. It's going to be great. And you're going to look at it and you're going to wonder, how did it ever turn to this? I mean, we live in this world, right? I mean, we see the sin and we see the ugliness and we feel the pain and the hurt and all this. And there's going to be a kingdom with none of that? How's that going to happen? Because God's going to do what he's going to do. The end of the kingdom will happen because of the beginning. The beginning predetermines the end. Jesus built his kingdom in this seed with all of the power and all of the growth and everything it needs to make this kingdom happen. And so this is what he's telling. And the work, the working reign of God in our world today is easy to be overlooked and missed, right? It's not like news is just gonna like report on it. Here's what God's doing today. No, they're gonna walk right by it. They're not gonna see it. And the challenge is for God's disciples to be able to have eyes to see, to be able to see how he's working, which sometimes it seems silently, sometimes it seems behind the scenes, underground, whatever, but how he is working in the world. And it takes empowered faith to do that. I think there's several lessons about empowered faith that Jesus is actually giving to the disciples and to the people who are listening if they have ears to hear it. And the first is this, that disciple makers, they have this empowered faith that develops confidence in the face of despair. You develop confidence in the face of despair. Why? Because there's some times when the seed is underground, isn't it? When the seed winters and you're looking around and thinking, what's going to happen? I mean, we did this. I worked the ground. We've been working hard and I've got nothing to show for it. And we feel like that in life sometimes, don't we? I've been working so hard. God, I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to honor you. I'm reading the word. I'm trying to pour into people. And I'm looking at it. I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? I feel like I'm spinning my wheels. When is there going to be results? When is there going to be some action to all? When is there going to be something I can celebrate? But in the face of despair, there's this confidence that God is working. Would the disciples need to learn that? Oh, you bet they would. I mean, they faced despair. It seemed like almost every corner, didn't they? I mean, hey, uh, hey guys, come follow me. And at first it all seems great. Here's the masses. And then what happens? The masses are going to hightail it out of there at some point. Despair. Because now it's just you. We thought we had this great movement. Now it seems so small. Despair. Jesus is going to be crucified. They're going to be hung out in an upper room just kind of talking. Despair. They're going to be forced to leave Jerusalem. Despair. The church that they've poured into and planted, it's being persecuted. Despair. Many of these, these guys are going to be martyred. One of them exiled off on an island to die. Despair. But in the face of all that despair, all these trying moments that would come, there's going to be this confidence that develops that God is going to do, that God is going to accomplish exactly what he's going to accomplish, that this seed will yield kingdom fruit because it's built into the seed. This is what God's going to do. There is this confidence to it all. You know, there's many would-be, I believe, disciple-makers out there that we have this myopic spiritual vision of what God should do, and we expect it to be this, and then sometimes it feels like this. 
And so it's easy just to, I don't see what difference it makes anyway. You know, I tried that, but I'm just going to go back. Because it's easy to miss. We can become so impatient in the process. But sometimes the roots have to go down before growth comes up. Disciple makers must have this empowered faith that has confidence even in the face of despair. Another lesson that I think he's trying to give the disciples and those who are listening who have ears to hear, that disciple makers who have empowered faith, they trust not in their own competency, but in God's sufficiency. They trust not in their own competency, but in God's sufficiency. The growth of this seed, the evolution of the kingdom, is not dependent upon the farmer, right? He doesn't even know what he's doing. It's like, all I know is I get up in the morning, I go to bed at night, and man, here's, here, here's what's happening. It's not, how's it all happening? It's God. When you trust in your competency, well, then you have to see results, don't you? Because that lets you know that things are good, right? If, well, if I see this, now I know we're on the tra- right track. If I see this, now I know things are healthy here. If I see that, yes, it's good. But if I don't see it, well, must not be too good. Must not be that healthy. See, the seed grows. The kingdom will grow without our assistance. God's not in need of us. He's not like looking down and saying, man, if you will just get to work, then I can have my kingdom that I've always wanted. God's not in need of us. He invites us to be a part of the process because he loves us. Just like we invite kids to be part of what we do because we love them. We don't always need them. Maybe when they grow up, we do, right? But when they're little, you know, hey, come along because we love you. Uh, The seed here, it's growing because this is what's built into it. It's God's sufficiency. He's going to make it happen. At the same time, Jesus is not encouraging spiritual inertia here. He's not like forming these disciples just to sit back on their hands and say, you know what? You guys don't have to do anything. I got all this taken care of. Y'all just, you know, live life, be merry, do whatever you want to do. It's all good. I've got it. No, he invites them at the same time to be part of the process, again, because he loves them. And that requires a lot of work. I mean, Paul, he wrote about everything in 2 Corinthians 11. And he says, I've toiled and labored. I've spent many sleepless nights. I've been naked. I've been hungry. I had all these desires. Why? Because I planted these churches. And I want to see them grow. And I want to see them healthy. And I want to see them love God and love people. And he says, so I will boast in Christ. But it's hard work. And you look at all the disciples. Not one of them do you just look at and say, man, they didn't really do anything. You know, after all this, they just kind of sat back and did nothing. No, we get to work. Why? Because we're freed to do so. There's a freeing thing about this principle because we see it as God's sufficiency. He's where it's not my competency. So I can join him in the work and I can be confident that he's going to do what he's going to do. If you ever hear anybody say, "Ah, you know, I just can't make disciples. It's not my gift. It's not my thing. I'm just not, I'm not good that way. You know, in one sense, there's some truth there. But what the person is ultimately saying is, I don't trust God's sufficiency to be able to do that through me. I don't think he could use me that way. God chooses to use his church. He chooses to use you. 
He's built in you the capacity to make disciples, not in and of your own strength, but through him. And so we get to join arms with him, walk in his spirit. And he does things that we look back on and say, Man, I don't know how that happened. Because it was him. But we were just obedient along for the right. When you walk in his love, when you walk in his sufficiency, you can't help but be about what God's about. That's just kind of how it works. But it's still, it's a trust, it's a confidence in his sufficiency, not our competency. There's another lesson here. And that is that disciple makers who have this empowered faith, they grow in patient faith. And this is especially important for us today because we live in a day and age when everything is instant gratification, right? I mean, you drive through a drive through, get your food right away, fast food. I mean, this is a culture, we stand in front of a microwave and we yell, hurry. You know, come on, you gotta be faster than that. Everything is fast, everything's immediate. We want it all right away. Yet you cannot hurry this process along. We expect sometimes, okay, plow the field, sow some seed, you know, till it, weed it, whatever, and then boom, next day, boom, 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 we want harvest. You know, hey, we'll have one good worship service, we'll hammer home discipleship, we'll come back next week, boom, we'll multiply this thing out well, two to three times bigger, all these disciple make. Now, there's a patience to all this. There's a the, the, the seed, it has to go down deep, it has to develop roots, and then it will sprout. And so we have to cultivate this patient faith that knows that God is going to bring about what he is going to bring about. It's going to reach its culmination in the appointed time. And when you go through and you look at Jesus' words to his disciples, you'll see that there's so much waiting involved. As busy as these guys were, as active as these guys were, there's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of patience. He says, Elijah must come. The son of man must suffer. The gospel must be preached. The disciples must face suffering. Judgment must come upon Jerusalem. The gospel must go to all nations. Then you must wait for the Lord's coming. Then you must wait for the full harvest to come in. It's, it's always waiting, it seems like. You gotta wait for this and wait for this. Yes, there's an activeness to it while you're waiting, but there's always something to come in this stage while we're still in the growth stage before the kingdom does come in. And the church now, we've been patiently waiting for about 2,000 years as God waits for the full harvest of his church to come in. And so disciple makers must grow in a patient faith that can look at our circumstances when it feels like, man, things seem like they're getting worse, not better. Like, I'm being faithful, God. I feel like I'm being faithful. But yet life feels worse. And these people that I'm pouring into, God, now it feels like they're walking away. Life seems more difficult. There's a patience to it all that God will accomplish what he will accomplish in his appointed time. And so Jesus, he's teaching these lessons to the disciples. And he's bringing them in close afterwards. And he's making sure they understand. And, and don't you imagine that as he brings them in and he's explaining to them and just the small group, okay, here's what this means. Here's what I'm saying. This is what I'm getting at. That they're all saying, yes, I see that, Jesus. That's right. I believe that. This is, yes, we, we need to have this patient faith. We need to trust in, in God's sufficiency and not our own competency. 
Yes, God, believe all these things with confidence in the face of despair. We're there. We're with you. Don't you imagine that was the reaction? Yeah, I think so. And so now Jesus, it's almost like he flips the switch and says, okay, what you say you believe in theory, let's see if you really believe in practice. And so then comes the storm story. You've got to see this in context. If, if, you, if you divorce the storm story from the rest of Mark 4, it gets very difficult to interpret and to really understand. So here's what happens in the storm, right? That Jesus has been teaching all day. He's been teaching these parables all day. He's had some time with his disciples. It's been a long day. He says, hey, guys, let's go to the other side of the lake. The guys are like, yeah, I'm ready for a rest. Let's go. So they get in their boats. They're headed over to the other side of the lake. And on their way, what happens? It's the mother of all storms. We know it's a huge storm because most of these guys were, decide, or were fishermen. And most of these fishermen, they fished right there on the Sea of Galilee. They'd been there their whole life. They'd spent how many days, how many nights, hundreds, thousands of days, nights on that sea. They knew that sea well, but now they're scared to death because this is a ferocious storm. The waves are breaking into the boat. It's filling up. They're doing all they can to try to keep this boat afloat. I mean, they're, they're at it. They're working hard. They're throwing water overboard as more and more water just keeps crashing in. And finally, they reach a point where these guys know we're not getting out of here alive. I mean, this is it. Jesus, meanwhile, he's in the back of the boat, asleep, snuggled up with a cushion. Now, in those days, fishing boats, oftentimes, they, um, they're relatively small. And in the back of the boat, you would have like a bench that, uh, with a cushion that you would invite your guests. If you had a guest along, that they could sit there. Or if there was a woman on board, you'd, you'd often allow her to sit there. Jesus, after a long day of teaching, it's like, hey, God, I need a rest. I'm going to the back of the boat. Takes the cushion. He's snuggled up. He's asleep. These guys, man, they've been working hard. They're at it. They're trying to save this thing. And they reach the point where they know there's no saving this. And so they go to Jesus and they ask him the question, Jesus, don't you even care that we're all dying here? I mean, we're all going to die. Don't you care? Now, what's interesting, isn't it? Because they say they believe that he's the Messiah. They say they believe that he's Lord, that he's God. But in this moment, they believe that, hey, you may be the Messiah, but you're dying just the same as all of us. We're dying right here in this lake. We know what's going to happen, right? This is, this is where they're at. Jesus, he gets up. He doesn't even speak to those guys first, does he? He just gets up and he talks to the sea. He talks to the wind. The same way we talk to a child. It's actually the same way that he talked to the demons in the demon-possessed man earlier. And back in chapter 1, he says the same thing. Quiet, be still. And immediately, it all calms down. It's all quiet. You know, we could take a, a bucket and put a bunch of water in there, and we could, like, kind of shake it all around and be like, okay, now we're going to be still. And when you set the bucket down, you still have to wait, like, a minute, right, for all the ripples to go out. It's not like immediately. You can never do this immediately. I mean, I almost picture these guys, and this is kind of how I visualize it in my mind, that they're in the boat, and they're trying to throw out all this water, and they're yelling, and it's all a frenzy, all a panic. And maybe here comes another big wave about to crash in. These guys are bracing for the impact. And the wave never comes. And they kind of look up and look at the water. And it's, it's like a beautiful night now. Every, everything's 
peaceful, calm. It's interesting. What starts with a great storm ends in a great calm. But for the disciples, when the great storm starts, there's a great fear. When the great calm happens, well, there's still a great fear. They're not afraid of the storm anymore. Storm's calm. They're not afraid that the boat's going down. No, they know the boat's okay. The boat survived this. What are they afraid of now? Man, everything we've said about Jesus, everything we've thought about you, is it really true? I mean, is this guy really the Messiah? I mean, what kind of guy is this who can just speak to the storm like you speak to a child? Who is this? And so now there's this great fear over who Jesus is. Because what they have believed in theory, they did not really believe in practice. It was easy to mentally assent. It was easy to say, yeah, okay. But when the storm hit, not so much. And Jesus, what does he say to these guys? Why are you guys so afraid? You still have no faith. Now, when you just read that comment apart from like the rest of Mark and you just come to this story and you read this story and Jesus says, why do you still have no faith? It's almost like, Jesus, aren't you being a little tough on these guys here? I mean, no faith? These guys have left a lot to follow you. I mean, they left their jobs. They've, they've, they've followed you around. I mean, they, they seem like they're being faithful. I know in this moment they didn't exercise faith. But can we cut them a little slack? I mean, there's this huge storm. Waves are coming in. I mean, it's hard. Like, no faith? It almost seems harsh, doesn't it? Like, can you be a little more generous? Could maybe, like, affirm some of their good stuff and then point out, like, here's how you can develop that little small mustard seed of faith that you have? No, he says, you have no faith. Now, how's he able to say that? Because he's just taught them what faith looks like. He's just taught them, here's what happens with empowered faith. And now here's your opportunity to exercise it. And what happens? There's none of it. You have no faith. What does empowered faith look like? Empowered faith has confidence in the face of despair. Right? They've just learned this. And now here it is. Boom. Despair, hard times. Is there faith? No. No, there's panic, there's fear, there's frenzy. See, here's, here's one of the things about God. He wants to take the mush of the disciples' faith, he wants to take the mush of your heart, and he wants to turn it into a muscle of faith. And oftentimes he does that through adversity. Oftentimes he does that through the storms and the trials of life. That we tend to grow the most when there's tension. I mean, you look back at the moments in your life and you say, man, this is where I really grew. Oftentimes, it's tension. There's something in our story that, oh, man, I was struggling. This was hard. This was difficult. I had made this choice or this happened in my family. And then, but, you know, I turned to the Lord. I turned to God. And here's what he did. Tension. He wants to use the tension in your life to strengthen your confidence in the object of your faith, Jesus. But it is those storms of life that will reveal if there is any faith at all. And for the disciples, storm hits. They're not looking to Jesus. 
right? There's not confidence here in the face of despair. Now, Jesus had said something, hadn't he? Let's go to the other side. We're going to go to the other side. How you're going to get there, you might not know that, but we're headed to the other side. There's no confidence that they're going to get there. There's just fear. When you face the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties and the hardship and the pain of life, does your faith in God come out? Or is it panic? Is it frenzy? Is it just like kind of grasping for straws, anything to bring some hope, bring some peace to this? Disciple makers have empowered faith, which develops confidence in the face of despair, and it gets displayed in real life. Jesus, he also taught that disciple makers have this empowered faith that does not trust in their own competency, but in God's sufficiency. So what's happening here in the boat? Uh, I mean, here comes the storm. What do the disciples do? Jesus is right there in the boat with them. But that's not where they're looking. They're not looking to his sufficiency. They're looking to their own competency. We're fishermen after all. We've been, we got this. We can handle this. Let's like muscle up. Let's get to it. We're going to be all right. And they, they, so they get to work. They're throwing water overboard. It's not until they think that they're dying that they actually go to Jesus. And even then, it's, it's not even like, hey, can you help? It's like, man, I can't believe you don't even care that we're going to die. Like, I thought we were closer than that. There is this faith that trusts in God's sufficiency, not our competency. And so the same thing is true for us, that as we go about our life, as we live life, how we do our jobs, how we structure our marriages, how we raise our kids, how we live as neighbors in our communities, how we live as citizens in our country. Do we do it all based on our own competency? Okay, I've got this. I can do this. I've got this. I'm all right. Or do we see God's sufficiency for all of it? Do we recognize our dependency, our need for him in the everyday moments of life? Because that's what he's trying to develop. That if you're not going to trust my sufficiency here, when life gets really hard, again, you're just going to go back to what you think you do. And that's no faith. Jesus also was teaching his disciples that empowered faith develops a patient faith. There's a patience to it all. Ironically here, it's fascinating, I think, that Jesus is in the boat with these guys and this is a crazy storm, and he's asleep. You know, he's not, like, worried. He's not, oh, man, you know. He can sleep through this whole thing. Now, some have said, I don't know if Jesus is really sleeping. Maybe, I think maybe he had, like, one eye open. and just kind of, this is a test. You know, he's watching his disciples, see how they do. Now, I think in his humanity, he's really asleep. I mean, says he's asleep. I'll just go with he's asleep. And so he's sleeping through all this. There's a calm. There's a peace. There's a patience that God's going to do what he's going to do. The disciples, there's no peace. There's, there's no patience and all that. Man, everything is a frantic mess because they don't go to Jesus. It's all dependent upon them. There is this patient faith. And so Jesus, when he tells these guys, you have no faith, it's because he just taught them what faith looks like. And they displayed none of it. So you have no faith faith. Oh, you might have passed the quiz in the classroom, 
But then when it gets put out into real life, it didn't mean a thing. And Jesus says, this is not the kind of disciples that I want to make. Uh, he's making disciples that when the storms of life hit, that just when everyday life hits, man, faith comes out. Empowered faith comes out. And the challenge is we read this and we wonder to ourselves, I think if we're being really honest, you know, if I was in that boat, I might have been doing the same thing the disciples were doing. I might have just grabbed the bucket. I might have just started, you know, getting to work just as fast as I could. All these guys were doing that too. I mean, I think that's probably what I would have done. And Jesus is saying, no faith. No faith. You know, the encouragement that you can also take from this is that those guys who had no faith in the boat, Jesus was going to cultivate a muscle of faith in their hearts. It would take some time to get there. This here is really like a training ground. There's a storm on the sea, but there would be storms of life that would come for all of them. And when they came, great faith. He wants to do the same for you. He, he wants to, you to know that he wants to use you to all that reaping, all that harvesting that we're talking about, all that fruit that we're talking about last week. That's what he wants to produce in your life. 30, 60, 100 fold. How does he do that? Through empowered faith. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. God, that you choose to use us. You don't need us, but God, in your graciousness, you allow us uh, to work with you. And so God, forgive us for when uh, we think that it's up to us or that uh, the results are going to depend upon our competency. God, it is fully because you are sufficient and you have put into your kingdom what will eventually come out. So God, we, uh, to recognize that here and now, to walk in this empowered faith, we recognize we need your help. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.